Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. In this episode of Human Eyes, I'm going to have a conversation with one of the most well-read and original thinkers I know, a true intellectual in the best sense of the term, who is also a dear friend. Joseph Bottom is one of the nation's most widely ranging thinkers, with hundreds of essays, reviews, poems, and short stories in publications from the Atlantic to the Washington Post. He is the former books and arts editor for the Weekly Standard and former editor for the religious journal First Things. He is the author of The Sociological Study and Anxious Age, and more recently, The Decline of the Novel. He is also a Christopher Award-winning writer of children's verse. His popular writing ranges from obituaries in the Times of London to political essays in our leading journals to a number one best-selling sports essay in Amazon's Kindle Single Series. He is also a lyricist whose work has been performed by singers from Nashville to Carnegie Hall. A native of South Dakota, Bottom holds a BA from Georgetown and a PhD in philosophy from Boston College. He is an associate professor at Dakota State University and currently directs the Classics Institute, a think tank at Dakota State for the study of cyber ethics. If that's not enough, Bottom is poetry editor for the New York Sun. And in full disclosure, he is a far better writer than I am, which is why I occasionally throw rocks through his window. Jody, welcome to Humanize. Thanks for having me, Wesley, or Wesley, as my little daughter used to call you. I love she that term. thought there needed to be another syllable in there, Wesley. <laughs> She's probably right. Uh, you know, you spent your entire adult life engaged in the world of ideas and writing. What attracted you to intellectualism? Well, you know, I'm not sure I am an intellectual um, in some serious senses of that word, but I think that's because I hold such an elevated idea of what it would be to be an intellectual. I lack the languages, for instance, uh, that I think a true intellectual has, and I lack the singular commitment that it takes. Uh, in particular, and this is this is an answer to your question, Wesley. Um, my degree is in from Boston College is in medieval philosophy, my doctorate. But I didn't feel that I could just go do that, even though it remains an interest of mine. I didn't feel that I could do literary criticism in the kind of sense of 
say, mad Ted Hughes losing himself in 20 years of Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare. I didn't feel I could do many of the things to which I've been drawn in my life, Wesley, because they were killing babies. Meaning they being? Meaning that we lived in a world that was ankle deep in blood, that I saw a fading of the concept of the human. And for me, it simply became apparent that a legalized regime of abortion made it impossible to step away from the world in ways in which I was drawn. Uh, and I felt I had to engage in public life um, in whatever small way I've been able to do it. And what pulled me out from all those other things now, 25, 30 years ago, was abortion. That's very interesting uh, that a obviously searing public policy controversy caused you to actually change the course of your expectations with regard to your career. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, although that makes it sound more deliberate, like any of us at age 20 had a clear idea of our careers. Um, but uh, no, I'd gone to graduate school uh, and I just looked up one day and I saw a woman, with, I wrote about this for our friend Mary Eberstadt uh, in an anthology she put together called Why I Turned Right. And I said, I was in the library looking out uh, at the streets of Georgetown. These are back in the days, Wesley, when libraries had smoking lounges. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> so I was in the smoking lounge. In Georgetown, it made you want to smoke because the smoking lounges overlooked the Potomac and Key Bridge. It was really the, the best spot in the library were the smoking lounges. And uh, I watched a woman uh, on a on the brick sidewalk of Georgetown pushing a stroller that's bumping and the little girl is laughing and, and the little dachshund toy dachshund they have on a leash is wrapping itself around the, the wheels so that the woman can't fall and she spills her purse and the little baby, the little child, uh, the toddler in the stroller begins to laugh and clap her hands. And I see all this from a window of the library there, Lowinger library. And I thought, you know what? Babies are good, and anything that kills them, anything that denies them, any th attempt to define humanity away from this stretch of uh, conception all the way down to natural death, anything that wants to get its hands in there and mess with it and slaughter it is evil. And I was bound by that moral insight ever since. And that's pretty fascinating. I, I didn't know about that story. I, I wish that little girl could be find you and, and, and you would tell her that how she changed your life just by clapping and being delighted by the mishap of her mother. I do think though, it's fair to at least call you a public intellectual. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, but then, you know, Great were our sires, and as they fought, they writ, conquering by force of arms and dint of wit. Theirs was the giant race before the flood. This excursus into John Dryden um, comes from thinking about the previous generation, whom I actually thank uh, and think a little bit about in the acknowledgments at the end of my new poetry book, which will be out in September. Um, and 
how these people still seem like giants to me. This is Rene Girard. This is Avery Dulles. This is Richard John Newhouse. This is Gertrude Himmelfarb, the generation that's now slipped away. Um, I think of them as public intellectuals and measure my own smallness by their giant size. Well, I would say that answers uh, is a case in point of what I was saying. Uh, I, I read somewhere that you read two or 300 books a year. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's no, a lot of know. books. Probably, probably only 100, 150 serious books a year. Only 150 and serious I read, books. But I read, um, depending on my mood and how much I have to escape, I probably read three or 400 pulp you know, science fiction, mystery, uh, thrillers, because I'll read two or three a day if I want to escape from the world. And you never took speed reading, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, reading is you're, you're a great reader. And so, you know, reading is like driving a standard stick transmission, you know, a car with a, with a manual transmission. There are these different gears that you go in. And when you're reading poetry, fine poetry, or you're reading, uh, you know, Aristotle's metaphysics, or you're trying to trudge your way through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, you need to put it up in first or second gear and kind of grind your way up that hill. But when you're flying, like you are in in popular fiction, in pulp, in mysteries or science fiction, you know, you can get it down into fifth or sixth gear and really zip down the Autobahn. I promise you, I've never read Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley, uh, are you? Did you read the Methodists? I know. Uh, no, sorry, I'm not an intellectual. <laughs> but but you are Wesley, so I. Think I am Wesley. Thinking. Yes, that's uh, named after my father. Uh, let, let's get to what you're doing right now. Uh, you're the director of the Classics Institute for the Study of Cyber Ethics. Uh, what is the work of the institute, and what in the world are cyber ethics? Well, the Institute uh, has been fun. This was uh, right at the point I needed. I, I decided I really needed some kind of you know landing zone um, that I just couldn't keep riding at the speed at which I had been riding. Uh, the Board of Regents here in South Dakota and the really wonderful president over at Dakota State, uh, President Griffiths, uh, invited me to come over, maybe teach a class or two, and set up some kind of countercurrent to the school's primary focus, which is uh, data security, all these degrees in computer science. And they just wanted somebody to be the gadfly on campus in order to raise the tone of the school. I think they thought we can make the second tier, you know, the, the B class of computer schools if we just do the computer stuff really well. But to move up into the A class, which is what the school has ambitions for, we have to have at least somebody on campus walking around saying, you know, maybe this whole computer revolution thing was a mistake. Uh, maybe social media is actually bad for us. Uh, and, uh, and they thought I was the perfect person to do that. And it's a philosophy position, so my doctorate sort of fit in. And it took me a year, really. I've been collecting string on some of this, but it took me about a year to get really up to speed. But then we started bringing in speakers. 
um, and hosting conferences and trying to be a public face of a place where one could discuss in an intelligent way um, the actual effect of 40 years of the computer revolution. One of the things I did, for instance, was bring in speakers who remembered the world before computers and got each of them to talk about kind of like a documentarian uh, history, uh, talk about their profession and the changes it undertook there the computer revolution brought about. So the great jazz critic, Ted Joya, uh, came in and did music, how the computer rev 40 years of the computer revolution has changed music. Uh, Heather Wilson, who at that time was secretary of the air force came in and did war, how war has changed by 40 years of the computer revolution. I had a librarian from Cambridge come in and talk about libraries. Uh, and, the sense of all of them was this, which is which was a segue to our actually talking about computer ethics when cyber ethics, which I know you're interested in, Wesley. Every one of them seemed to think that there was a wonderful gain of computers for or by because of computers for those who were trained up in the world before computers. But that something Explain that a little bit. Explain well, that a little but bit. But something different happened when you were brought up, say, in music, that's entirely computerized. Yes. The, the model of this is Yaroslav Pelikan, the great scholar of patristics, uh, convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, just a wonderful scholar. And Pelikan, uh, I heard Pelikan talk once when uh, the project was completed up through 1 A.D., to digitize the entire corpus of Greek literature, every word of ancient Greek we had. Uh, this was called the Thesaurus Linguae Greke, and this is in the late 90s. You had to buy CDs of it, right? Mm. Uh, but they had digitized every word, and they were going to carry it all the way up to the fall of Constantinople so that you could actually search. And he said, and Pelican gave the talk. This project, by the way, was funded by Hewlett Packard money. Because one of the Packard kids grew up to be a classicist and used part of his inheritance to pay for the digitizing of every, every syllable we have of ancient Greek. Uh, but uh, Pelican was the speaker at the party at Princeton when it was all done. And Pelican said, you have to understand what this does to my profession. An undergraduate with a reasonable working knowledge of ancient Greek can now do in 15 minutes the kind of searches for which we used to give PhDs. Wow, that's interesting. That they used to give PhD for word counts. Like every time Aristotle uses to on, the verb to be, right? That would be yeah. a, a dissertation. Now you can just bring them up and print them out on a, you know, and he said this for someone in my generation who read the corpus of Greek literature. This is fantastic. I can just I say, doesn't, doesn't Plutarch talk about that somewhere and look it up and find it? He said, but what about for that undergraduate who will never read the corpus of Greek literature? What does it do? How does the profession change? And I've used that as a model for thinking about um, the gains of the computer revolution as enormously helpful to the people who understood a field and been trained up in it. And these were devices for speeding their work. 
but something cognitively different happens when you have people who are brought up on that speed. Mm -hmm. But for people who never have to do the deep dive, uh, for people who, for whom, in Marshall McLuhan's terms, the key, even when they're working with text, the way stockbrokers are and scholars are, even when they're working with text, it's not text in the classic sense that gave us the modern age, that gave us the Enlightenment, that gave us the American founding, that gave us all kinds of things that were based on a world in which we understood the virtues to be the virtues held by readers of printed word. This was virtues of self-reliance, virtues of self-interpretation, vir virtues of free speech, virtues of all the things that you do, or the, that are, or, I'm sorry, activities, the virtues of which are implicated or locust in the reader sitting by his or herself with the book. And what happens when that's no longer the center of intellectual life, that's no longer the center of ideas, that's no longer the center of conversation where we write books to one another. This instead, we end up back in like the nomadic tribe. Twitter is basically, this is an analogy, I think, from Megan McArdle. Um, Twitter is basically a nomadic tribe walking along, criticizing each other to keep everybody in line. It sounds like you're saying that computerization, while it has certainly added to our ability to find things, has created a shallower intellectual life. Well, yeah, but at the very least, a different intellectual life. I mean, McLuhan points out, this is, I mean, McLuhan can be a nutball. Marshall McLuhan can be a nutball sometimes, and he can be just profoundly insightful at other times. This is why I love reading him so much. He was much overvalued in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, which led to a reaction against him. But I think the time has come to revive what was good in Marshall McLuhan. Uh, and he has an observation that seems to me quite brilliant and certainly arresting when he says a people who rely primarily on visual information are bombarded with information. The nomadic tribe, as they walk along, they see a tree. They have to discern whether there's a leopard in the tree ready to jump out at them. They're walking through tall grass. They have to be constantly aware. They're bombarded with visual information. Um, and he said, the trouble is visual information is so dense that to deal with it on any slightly higher level of abstraction, you have to have myth. Hmm. You have to have story. You have to have these kind of complicated or these devices to organize information. Uh, printed word is essentially a thin presentation of information. It's not bombarding you. You're getting it in, in these pieces. Now, you know, to read Heidegger or Hegel is to read pretty dense sentences, but it's still not like trying to absorb the world of visual information that a nomad walking through the veldt has to grasp. And he says he worried well, about, all the way back in 1965 that the computer would recreate the world of visual information. 
And he said, we will see a return. If it does, we will see a return to myth and understanding the world by the devices of myth, which is certainly a description of memes. What do you think is the most urgent ethical concern uh, with regard to our increasingly computerized world? Uh, the destruction of the adolescent mind, mm, the, burning of, the burning of pathways of attention uh, into uh, unformed minds in adolescents and children too. But, but I think it, it becomes particularly, the, particularly damaging in the adolescent mind. I mean, Wesley, we are living in a world in which girls, teenage or teenage girls' suicide rates are through the roof, higher than they've ever been. Uh, we're also living in a world where they're spending hours a day on Instagram. And these two things are not unrelated. But they have, you know, this is, I do not believe that there is an evil genius out there uh, plotting this. But the combinations of a capitalistic drive to maximize profit or maximize views uh, means that we're constantly stumbling on new devices for capturing the attention. And those who have unformed minds uh, have pathways in their brains that are not yet fully formed, and they are being burned in by their watching stuff online. They, they have attention spans that are shockingly low. Uh, it is just, here's a statistic I saw just the other day. Somewhere around 80% of adolescents have never seen a baseball game, even though they call themselves baseball fans. They call themselves baseball fans because they can't watch anything but the highlights. That's really something. Do, do you find, since you're teaching young people, um, that that there has there's some truth to that impact in the in the way you see the your students even though they're they're out of high school um, relating to you and relating to the work they're given. Yeah, I I have trouble pinning it down in them because you know these if I teach one of the honors classes these are smart kids who come into the premier computer program in the Midwest uh, and you know, they're, then they have to take some humanities classes. So they take my honors intro to philosophy class. Uh, and they're really smart. They have the background information of small squirrels. They know nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't assume they know anything. My very first day of, day of teaching, I discovered that there was not a student in my honors class who could place Socrates within a thousand years of either side of his life. Wow. Um, so a 2,000-year window, and they couldn't put Socrates in it. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, you know, they're smart kids. They've just been, you know, badly, or they haven't been educated. But isn't that part of the problem, Wesley? I mean, I think we're systematically abusing our children by failing to educate them in yes. the culture, in the history of the culture, in the deep things, in teaching them that they're going to die. For instance, teaching them that the human literature and music is about God and sex and death and the deep stuff. And we refuse to teach it to them. We don't teach history to them. And what emerges are explanatory devices to apologize for our not teaching them. 
uh, to explain it away. So if Western civilization's history is nothing but a tale of oppression, nothing but a tale of violence, nothing but a tale of evil, then you don't actually have to know it. You don't have to know any of its details. In fact, you shouldn't know any of its details because to try and make fine distinctions would be complicity with evil. Instead, we can just say history is the tale of all that had gone before in evil, and I stand against evil. And history is taken care of. Uh, and we do this with literature. It's so much easier to dismiss Shakespeare as, or to feel that you have contained Shakespeare by saying he's a dead white male than it is to read him. Yeah. And we've replaced Shakespeare with TikTok. Uh, which is, you know, these little, these 10 second, 12 second sound bites. Uh, you know, the first thing I would do uh, if, or the first piece of advice I would give a parent is go buy a flip phone for your child. <laughs> right. You, you want your child to be able to call you in yeah. an emergency, right? What you don't want is your child to be able to get on the internet. Yeah. That's easier said than done though. Yep. Uh, we've, so. we've abdicated our responsibility here. Um, and you know, and then every, it's like a ratchet, you know, a ratchet wrench, yes. um, that only bites in one direction. You can turn it back, but it only bites in one direction. This is us with the computer revolution. We can turn the handle back, but it only bites in one direction. We keep tightening the nut. And the people who are getting crushed by that nut, this is to extend the metaphor perhaps further than it should go, but the people who are getting crushed by what we do are the weakest among us. You know, you, you know lots of kids, your nieces, your nephews, you know, you know these young people. If they come from intact homes where families insist that everybody put away their cell phones to eat dinner together, where they, you know, they go out horseback riding or bicycling together, where the, there's conversation, where they're brought up with safety nets of families they know who love them and will look out for them. Those kids are the strongest, and they're going to do well in the computer revolution. Um, but the kids who come from weak homes, from weak situations, who don't have those safety nets, they're the ones who are going to suffer. And the data is all in now. We used to think, and you'll still sometimes hear people complain that, you know, the poor don't have access to the internet. It simply isn't true. That that was true maybe five, 10 years ago. Now it is the rich who can stay off the internet. This becomes a luxury good that the rich can have the luxury of taking their kids offline. The poor don't. The single demographic with the highest percentage of cell phone ownership, which is like 99.5%, are black teenage girls from the inner city. They all have cell phones. The studies are in suggesting that the lower down you go into social classes, the higher the percentage of time is spent online or staring at a screen. Up to, in the case of... Uh, Hispanics of the first generation in inner city uh, 
uh, or the inner cities, spending up to 15 hours a day looking at a screen. Those kids. There, there's an irony here because I, I hear quite a bit of political advocacy that uh, poor people, people of color, are cheated because they don't have uh, necessarily the best access online. And you're saying that what's really cheating them is that they have too much and that has basically consumed them from other issues and other uh, endeavors that would actually better them uh, more than the uh, frivolous Instagram or TikTok. Absolutely. That complaint, which you'll still see sometimes, you know, Vermont, Vermont's legislature a couple of years ago tried to pass uh, a law that everyone had internet access and they were going to give free computers to all lower income children uh, to access that. You know, it's a lovely thought, but it's also five to 10 years out of date. Interesting. You know, that, that complaint. And you still hear it because people aren't up to speed on where we actually are. So as a uh, cyber ethicist, how do you, or is there a, an ability to remedy that situation? There was a study done in England a couple of years ago. They took these kids out of London, Manchester, Lincoln, I think, and they took them out to the woods where they couldn't get deliberately, I think it was near a military installation, so there was deliberately no uh, cell phone reception, no internet access. And they watched these kids and took notes on their behavior. And what they, they saw was that the kids would keep poking at their phones, even though they knew they didn't work. Wow. They would just take them out every few minutes and poke at them like maybe it had magically come back on. <laughs> they became irritable. Um, physically, there were physical altercations over the course of like two days. Um, they were all filled with an anxiety about what was going to happen to them because they didn't have their phones working. And if you step back and look at those, those are extreme examples of what in any other context we would call withdrawal of an addiction. Yes. We saw existential dread. We saw a, a huge amounts of anxiety manifesting itself in physical behavior. We saw uh, repetitive pointless behavior in them pushing at their phones. We saw all the secondary char characteristics of addiction. And yet the, the performers of this, the people who undertook this study shied away from calling it an addiction, which was madness. It is clearly an addiction. And it's an addiction driven by the, the, the unformed nature of their brains, by the capitalistic excellence or the capitalistic skill in discovering what works and what doesn't. Uh, to capture attention, everything is pushing in the same direction toward an addiction. And you know, and I know adults who have this addiction. They're online all day. They're always checking their email. They're always looking at Twitter. They can't write. These are writers I know who can't write for more than a 15-minute block. And every time they sit back to think about it, they click over onto Twitter just to see. What's happening? Yeah. Uh, I know writers like that. It damages their writing, I think. Um, but those are the strong ones who can get away with it. 
Now imagine that addiction among children, children of broken homes, children with terrible education systems, uh, children for whom what adults there are in their lives uh, use this as babysitting. Yes, that's true. For, you see further, that constantly. Yeah, yes. Further burning in those pathways of attention into the, the, the unformed mind. I mean, I've seen children in literally baby strollers being given these little video things to play with so mm -hmm. that uh, they don't bother mommy or daddy. Uh, some, one of our friends tweeted out uh, a line the other day of a um, grocery checker right? The checkout person at a grocery store saying she could always tell the kids, the small handful of kids who were not online all the time. She said when they're brought in with their parents or whoever, because they have children's eyes. Well, that's interesting. They look at things. They're fascinated. They're curious. Repetitive behavior captures their eye. You know, like they, they watch the woman's hands as she's moving the stuff across the scanner. They're interested in the colors. She said, but the majority of kids she sees have the eyes of old people. They're slightly dull. They don't focus. Nothing captures their attention. Uh, now, that's anecdotal, of course, but it does express something that I find terribly worrisome about the computer revolution is the effect of this most of all on our children. And those effects will manifest themselves in adolescence. Yeah. Uh, this is beyond the scope of our conversation, but I think you're seeing that with a lot of the transgender issues and uh, it, a lot of uh, real radical things are happening among children and adolescents that would have been undreamed of 10 or 15 years ago and certainly wouldn't have been able to be become viral to use that term without this computer aspect that you're discussing. Yeah. And there are several motors of that. An interesting one that I think deserves to be better known than it is, is a study Cass Sunstein did, you know, who's the democratic power advisor, but at, from the university of Chicago, but he did a very interesting study 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in which he points out groups tend to consolidate around their most radical positions. Uh, and what he did was he took several issues like gun control uh, and, you know, guaranteed minimum wage. He took these issues, got people to participate in the study who represented a variety of views. And he separated like all the people in favor of gun control into one group and all the people opposed to gun control in another. And then they would discuss for four or five hours, and then he would test them again on their views. And what he discovered is if the groups are mixed, there's a general, small, but general move toward the center. Uh, if the groups are separated, there is a slightly larger, still small, but, but visible drift toward the more extreme position so that the squishes become strong, the strong become super strong and the super strong become radical. Mm -hmm. Everything shifts in that direction. Uh, and that was true for the pro gun 
uh, control people and the anti-gun control people. I think that study deserves to be better known because it is basically social media. Mm. You end up in groups of like thinkers and there's a constant drift toward the more extreme position because of that. Ah, that's very interesting. I do think that you can see that happening. Right. And that's one of the mechanisms I think that produces this. Another is, you know, the riot, the black lives matters riots, the, um, Occupy Wall Street stuff, all of that is computer generated, right? They could let each other know, they could bypass any uh, walls, their barriers, they could um, gin each other up. Uh, you see this happening in ways that would not have been possible before Twitter, uh, before social media. But I also think there's a, so that's, that's a second motor that the computer revolution has given this radical stuff. And the third motor is the general breakdown of the idea of authority. Mm -hmm. um, and the computer revolution has certainly aided that. Uh, I had friends who, you know, 10, 15 years ago, more, mm, yeah, 20 years ago, who celebrated, conservatives who celebrated the crushing of what they call the mainstream media by blogs. And they were convinced that the blog was going to break the stranglehold that kept conservative ideas out of circulation. And to a certain degree, it did. But of course, what it contributed to in its small way was the further degradation of the idea of authority. Mm -hmm. That gatekeepers are inherently evil. Uh, is what they believed. And, you know, then you get the consolidation of social media into of the, the internet into a handful of large companies who suddenly discover that they want to be the gatekeepers. Uh, and it's all kind of fascinating. I think, you know, conservatives seem to suffer no matter who's in charge. Uh, but still, you know, I don't think anybody is allowed to be an authority in the way that they used to be. And that's a problem uh, because, because first of all, we lose our idea of, of heroes. The, the disappearance of Freud, the, the, the hatred directed toward Freud, I think is one of the most fascinating turns of our lifetimes. Uh, because when I was young, Freud was taken as a model of a great mind. Now you never hear his name mentioned except as something evil. Uh, and I find that both of those are, are wildly inflated, but the change is just fascinating. But we don't trust these kinds of figures anymore. And it's as though... The computer revolution came along at exactly the wrong moment. Huh. You know, I think of it in terms of profanity. A generation before, if the computer revolution had come along, and by the way, one of the topics I've, I've been thinking about, writing about, and trying to bring in speakers for is the question of how much was the computer revolution actually dependent on the invention of the transistor and how much of it required a change of mind, a change of way of thinking. 
And I find that a really interesting question. But just if somehow we could have had the computer revolution a generation before, we would have banned profanity. We would have banned pornography from appearing on it. But it came right at this moment where all those guys out in Silicon Valley thought of themselves as libertarians. Uh, they thought anything goes. Uh, and lo and behold, you got this internet in which there's cursing, in which there's pornography. Suddenly now in the last 10 years, they've been trying to impose rules on it, but they can't distinguish actually useful rules from the banning of people that their own employees dislike. Yeah. And so they're caught. Uh, the stories of Elon Musk here over the past few days have at least done this good, Wesley. They have exposed the, the extent to which all those people who own those and run those, those uh, computer giants are trapped. They don't have a solution. They don't know what a solution would look like. Let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about poetry. You're a poet. Um, I always think of art and creativity as among the attributes that make us exceptional, human exceptionalism. I love Van Gogh. I love a good Beethoven sonata. But I can't get interested in poetry. You, on the other hand, not only edit it, you write it. What about poetry draws you so so uh, fast to its uh, to its uh, work and to its to its attractions? I think it's a deep belief in, trust in, fascination with words. I. I'm a monoglot of English, Wesley. You know, I, I barely passed my reading exams for my doctorate exam, and they were both ancient languages uh, that I didn't have to speak. Uh, and part of the reason, I think, is, or at least part of my excuse for it, my self-excuse, is that I love English. I love the sound of it. I love the taste of it in the mouth. I love the way words are things. And I think that that's actually what poets have. Now, they have other things as well that I lack. I'm not a great poet. Um, but there's you know, this sense that words have a will of their own. Will, words go places where they want to go. Uh, and they seem like objects and at their best, not even merely objects like rocks and trees, but animate objects. They have will, they have purpose, they have aims. There are things that words want to say. Now, that sounds like madness, of course, and it is madness. When W.H. Auden died, the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who was his friend in New York, spoke at his funeral, and she delivered this amazing line. She said, God knows the price of poetry is too high, and no one in his right mind would pay it. Uh, and of course, her point was, Auden wasn't in his right mind. Mm. Poetry is a kind of madness uh, in which you give over the mind to these words and the way that words work. It's not like you have an idea uh, and then find the words for it. That's what essayists do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that you have the words, and the word you stand back and let the words do their work. 
That's interesting. I'm a, a nonfiction writer. I'm an essayist, you might say. And you're absolutely right. The idea comes before and then the words come to help the idea. You're saying with poetry, the words actually may come first. Yeah. And in a sense, always come first. I mean, you could say, oh, I want to write a poem about falling asleep in church uh, when I was a child. Yeah. Okay. That's an idea. But the actual working out of that idea is letting the words go where they want to go. There, you know, you trust uh, rhyme, you trust meter, you trust uh, assonance and alliteration, you trust that uh, there's a reason that these words sound alike. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they sound. The reason is that you need to put a knot between them, uh, but the the words have a animate life of their own. And uh, I've never been able to do it, Wesley, to, to lose myself completely in that. It sounds but like I see lose- it as a possibility of human life, of human intellect, to just surrender to the madness of language. So basically the poet is, de- is taking himself or herself out of the picture and letting the words... The, is that the muse take yeah, over? That is, that's, that's the muse. Yeah. And, and that, the muse is, you know, the muse actually <laughs> amuses us uh, because what the muse, the metaphor of the muse is that you're possessed. It's right? a madness I mean, that, you're saying. Yeah. It's a madness. You're possessed. Sounds like Van Gogh painting. I mean, that's what happened with Van Gogh when he he got so lost in his painting, and that's why they're so vivid. Right. I mean, Beethoven was actually a personally modest man. Um, He was was not arrogant about himself. He was somewhat shy. Um, By all reports, he was kindly, if somewhat distant. And then he would say things like, Music is a greater revelation than all philosophy or literature. Um, because, you know, he thought music was moving through him. He was the instrument of it, which is not a cause for personal pride. Yes. But on the other hand, it's a recognition that music is this vast thing that's more important than, than philosophy, more important than theology. You know, I mean, he was a believer, so he wouldn't say it's more important than the Bible, but. He thinks that that what you do with music, or what that's exactly the wrong way to put it, what music does through you is a revelation of the world beyond. Would you read one of your recent poems? Well, I could. What do you like? Something comic? Something? Yeah, let's have something a little up. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. How about uh, reading by osmosis? Oh, I like that one. Go ahead. Okay. And it goes, well, Mark Twain, Hart Crane, and Ursula K. Le Guin. We've mastered their books with a difficult trick. We've read them outside in. Percy B. Shelley and Machiavelli and Norman Vincent Peale. We've never tried opening one of their books. We know them by their feel. Does reading seem boring? Does reading seem hard? Does reading seem too precocious? Just pick up a book and give it a twirl. You'll learn it by osmosis because 
Osmosis is the mostest. Osmosis is the best. Osmosis is the closest thing to reading without rest. Osmosis means absorbing. Osmosis means so much. Osmosis means we're soaking up the books we barely touch. We bubble bounce and throw them. We never even look. Osmosis means we know them without opening a book. You know, my sister osmoted the mill on the floss, a, a wonderful book, and gave me a gloss. My brother osmoted the Lord of the Rings, a story of insects with thousands of wings. Or was that a book called Lord of the Flies? Oh, well, we're getting wise by learning the things that osmosis now brings. We'll juggle the books, little women and men. They're all about dwarves in a mountainy den. And throw in a copy of Watership Down concerning a boat and some sailors who drown. And then we'll run to the bookstore again. We boast. We boast. Osmosis is the most phenomenal way to read today while reading jam and toast. We shout. We plead. Osmosis we will need for playing jam and munching snacks and dancing while we read. So, Rebecca West and Edgar Guest will never be certain which one is the best. Jean-Paul Sartre and Christopher Smart, just think of the wonders they have to impart. John Dunn and Tom Gunn, osmoting them both is a gallon of fun. Somerset Mom and L. Frank Baum, Josiah Royce and James Joyce, John Bunyan and Damon Runyon, Graham Greene and Molly Keane, Tom Payne and Ed McBain, Ring Lardner and John Gardner, Alice Munro and Arthur Rambo and oh... Hundreds of others we know because osmosis is the mostest. Osmosis is the best. Osmosis is the closest thing to reading without rest. Osmosis means absorbing. Osmosis means so much. Osmosis means we're soaking up the books we barely touch. We hold them to our noses. We brush them with our clothes. We're learning by osmosis when we tap them with our toes. We pile them on the table. We slide them on the floor. We stack them into stairways and we climb up for some more. We bobble bounce and throw them. We never even look. Osmosis means we know them without opening a book. That's very good. I like that. Um, what was the the uh, inspiration for that? Oh, I, I had formed this thesis that there were certain books you know too well to bother reading. Yes. Uh, the The archetype was Malthus's essay on population. Everybody knows the thesis, right, of that book that yeah. food increases arithmetically while population increases geometrically, so populations will always outstrip their food supply. I can say Which it never happens, seconds, right? Yeah. We, but we all know the thesis of it, yeah. and no one has ever actually read the book that contains that thesis. If I, I want to move on, there's so much to talk to you about, and and I'm giving short shrift here, but if people want to like me, <laughs> who want to appreciate poetry more, um, how should they go about it? I mean, it's, it, it's not something you can just look at and say, oh, you know, I mean, that particular poem was wonderful, but there are other poems that might be very difficult to penetrate. Right. Um, I sent you a poem, part of a poem that I wrote for uh, Rene Girard. Read that. Well, the poem is long and not long, but it's dense. I mean, I will read it because I, I think it is my best poem. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's about Gerard's theories of sacrifice, but personalized because I'm thinking about my daughter and her death and the dangers that she'll face in life. It's called Easter Morning. And it goes, quick as dawn, the dogwoods have raised improbable awnings christened with rain. Thrusts of witch hazel stands of rue, and there, 
There, across the stream, in the shade of those dark-likened rocks, white flocks and geraniums strained to reach the angled light. One bright morning, a clean April day, a mazes familiar paths with a green tangle and bases the winter stain. Faster each Easter my daughter flies, past tumbled mounds where brambles grow, the bloodroot flowers near her feet as delicate as Bible leaves, and slow persistent ivy kindles on old trees. The year will know a fresh redemption, burning green the green woods glow, till ash and thorn fall back to sleep, counterpaned again with snow. Beneath these trees, with ragged knives, cold priests once tried to wake the leaf, the root, the branch, the frozen world that needs new life for spring. A lamb, a child, the shrouds of snow would melt in their warm blood as grief by grief, pain by vengeful pain. We paid the sacrificial debt that swells with each repaying death, and where in time is time's relief. My daughter runs by the brief flowers, touch-me-nots among the stones, bluebells and sorrels, Solomon's seal. Every spring pretends a pity for all the pretty short-lived things. Last night I watched the fire zones, the bombers' plumes and tracer rounds, blooms of war on the TV news, and now in these green trees I see the graves of gods and a grove of bones." History labors, a worn machine, sick with torsion, ill-meshed, and every repair of an old fault ruptures something new. The sacred knife no longer hallows woods, but winter's blood still springs refreshed, and an altered world still summons death. As long as we endure ourselves, innocence will come to grief, and mercy must remain unfleshed. The parish bells begin their carols, down through the trees like flourished prayer, the Easter call resounding. Time reaches forward, hungry for winter, and what will save my daughter when even hope is caught in the ancient snare? A cold fear waits, till all that had fallen, all that was lost, rudely broken, crossed in love, comes rising, rising on the breath of the new spring air. That's really something, Jody. That's really something. I'm going to move on again from poetry. Not, I'd love to stay here, but there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, one of them is that you wrote, and it's kind of uh, consistent with the poem you just read. You once wrote an, an essay uh, um, in First Things in June of 07 that has touched me ever since. I mean, it's been a long time, and, and I often think about it. And it's um, it's called Death and Politics, and the uh, the essay had to do with you going to San Francisco and noticing, among other issues in the essay, that there were no cemeteries there. And you wrote this, and let me quote you: "Even the most ardent modernist might feel misgivings about a rejection of the dead as complete as San Francisco's, and such misgivings reflect, however dimly, a deep political insight." For a city without cemeteries has failed at one of the first lessons for having cities at all. Somewhere in those banished graveyards was a metaphysical ground for politics, and buried in them was a truth that too much of modern political theory seems to have forgotten. 
The living give us crowds, the dead give us communities. I never thought about that. Cemeteries do connect us to the past. Discuss that just a little bit, if you will. That's, to me, quite profound, and it has impacted me as I've been noticing how we are changing the way we deal with our mortal remains, which I'll get into in just a second. Um, At that time, I was interested in exactly what's drawn you to it, which was our physical bodies. And, And I was worried about what was happening I've gone on to work on other stuff and you've pursued this because the transsexual stuff, the physician assisted suicide stuff, the abortion stuff, the experimentation with embryos, all the rest of it is every one of them chips away at the human. If we wash the bodies of our dead down the sewer, we are essentially declaring our own lack of connection to physical reality, to all that has gone before, um, and to declare the dead forgettable is to give up on something human. Now, the dead don't live forever. Um, This is, you know, really 40, 50 years eliminates all first-person memory of the dead. Yes. Uh, but the dead do live beyond their deaths. This is the deep thought behind the idea of ghosts. This is what Carl Jung, at least, would have said was the archetype behind the idea of ghosts. Uh, and we need, we need to be connected to this for our politics. Recently, I gave a lecture in Sioux Falls uh, a couple weeks ago, in which I made a point not about the politics, but just about personal life. And the way I put it was this, Wesley, the importance of life comes from the future. You've got bills to pay. You've got children to bring up. You've got tasks to do. Your life has importance because of the future. But the richness of life comes from the past. The more connected you are to the past, the richer your life is. The more that you feel that those people who appear in those sepia photographs with their strange beards and their awkward poses and their unsmiling faces because serious people didn't smile, the more you can feel that they are you, that they're connected to you, the richer your life is. And you can reach back, the deeper you can reach back into the past uh, and feel that connection, the, the richer and more significant and more interesting and more powerful and more humane your life is. So, yeah, you know, I'm not putting down that, you have, that we have jobs to do, that we have children to bring up, that to have children is to give hostages to fortune. I, I don't deny all of that. The importance of life comes from the future. But the richness of life comes from the past, and the dead are our past. I had not thought death had undone so many as this line that's in Homer, and it's in Virgil, and it's in Dante, and it's in T.S. Eliot. It is this understanding that there is this chain of humanity that reaches all the way back to the beginning. And we need to be connected to it. And if we sever ourselves from it completely, we end up as these 
monistic objects of self-will that believe they are infinitely plastic, infinitely malleable, that they can carve off their genitalia and it will make no difference uh, except to that physical body with which they're dis- from which they're dissociated and with which they're unhappy without realizing that there is cause to be unhappy with the physical body because we die. But that's the human. And what you need to do is reach insanity beyond recognition that the body is somehow a dangerous, weak thing that that can suffer from disease and that will suffer from our lacks of understanding to reach beyond that to the, the intelligent adult position, which is that is what it is to be human. Yes. And, and it seems to me that, uh, when you pour yourself into the sewer, because now bodies are being liquefied or turn yourself into compost, um, you're, you're making a pretty strong statement about the lack of importance of your life. Yeah, no, you're, but also implicitly, uh, about the lack of importance of lives period. Yeah. You know, of it's the lack life. of importance of human life when basically we can just be turned into fertilizer and it's fine. And, and when you think about the veteran cemeteries, for example, Arlington has a deep meaning for us because we see all of those uh, gravestones and what those people did for us. Right. There's a little miniature uh, Arlington, but with the same layout, those headstones row in row. Uh, yes. At, at here in my hometown, or where I live in Hot Springs, South Dakota, where there was a veterans' home from back in the days when we would send sick people to go to Hot Springs to take in the water for their health. Well, there was a veterans' home built here, a veterans' hospital built here because of that, and it's got a military cemetery. And to see it is to feel a connection. Yes. And that's what I think our politics lacks. I don't see the further dissociating caused by online life helping with that. In fact, I see, I see it weakening further our sense of belonging to communities. Uh, I see the weakening of the family and the sense that you belong to your family, whether you like them or not. Uh, yes. The sense that you belong to a neighborhood, whether you like it or not. G.K. Chesterton has, among his many wonderful lines, he has a line in which he says, um, the Gospels advise us to love our enemies and love our neighbors, probably on the supposition that they're often the same people. Uh, (laughs) And there's this, you know, the sense of neighborhood where, yeah, you're, you're on the bus with these people. You know, you don't like them, you didn't choose them, but you're on the bus with them. And that so much of real human life is being on the bus with people that you didn't choose, you didn't get to say you liked them, you didn't get to pre-vet them, you're just on the bus with them. That's your family in a deep sense of, like, not only you're on the bus, but the doors are locked. Yes. Uh, But, you know, it's your neighbors, it's the kids you went to school with, it is community in the real sense of community not the arbitrarily chosen. You and I had this discussion years ago in which I said, my problem with our friends, the communitarians, is not that they're wrong because they were clearly right. The lack of community is destroying us. 
we're bowling alone in Putnam's great phrase. But their failure was in thinking that all you had to do was convince people that they needed to form communities because communities are good. No community ever got formed from the idea that community is good. Communities got formed because they have a purpose, because they have some geographical location, because they share blood, because their families, their neighborhoods, their, uh, these small platoons of democracy, as Edmund Burke called them, you know, they're the churches. Nobody joined a church or no, nobody who lasts in a church joined that church because they noticed all the good secondary effects that come from belonging to a close knit congregation. They joined because they believed. Yes. And then they get the secondary effects. And so we see this over and over again. You, if the communities are things that you entirely choose, they're going to fail. We need to be connected to the dead. We need to be connected to the living by geography. We need to be connected to our families by blood. We need, or at least the sense of familial belonging. And every time one of the sitcoms on television says, well, your friends are your family that you get to choose. I cringe, Wesley. I cringe because it is the destruction of civilization. You know, there's a through line throughout this whole interview, which I didn't anticipate, and I'm really happy is here, because it does get into the whole concept of human exceptionalism. I can't end this interview uh, without <laughs> reading from one of your essays, which, if, as you know what I'm going to talk about, I think, it's it's my favorite thing you ever wrote, because it's so wild. You reacted in righteous rage against um, anything goes biotechnology after a story came out claiming that scientists were crafting human-pig hybrids. And you wrote a piece in the Weekly Standard, which is now available on the uh, uh, Washington Examiner website, called The Pig Man Cometh. And I'm just going to read a little part of it. We have become the people that once upon a time our ancestors used fairy tales to warn their children against. And we will reap exactly the consequences those tales foretold. Like the coming true of an old story, the discovery of the philosopher's stone, the rubbing of a magic lantern, biotechnology is delivering the most astonishing medical advances anyone has ever imagined. You and I will live for many years in youthful health, our cancers, our senilities, our coughs, and our infirmities all swept away on the triumphant cresting wave of science. But our sons and our daughters will mate with the pigmen if the pigmen will have them, and our swine-snouted children, the fruit not of our loins but of our arrogance and our bright test tubes, will use the story of our generation to teach a moral to their frightened litters. (laughs) Good grief. I love that. It's one of the best examples of the use of hyperbole I've ever read. Tell us a little bit about that technique and what hyperbole, how hyperbole can be used as a means of communicating important ideas. Um, hyperbole is a branch of irony or is a species of irony. It's overstatement. Um, generally speaking, American humor tends toward hyperbole. This is now a great hyperbolic exaggeration, but American humor (laughs) wants to be hyperbolic. You want to overstate. It was the worst car crash in the history of the world. We want to say stuff like that. British humor, interestingly, tends toward litotes and understatement. Um, 
it was a little bit of all right is a is a sort of british use of irony that understates american irony tends to overstate and these are you know just rhetorical devices what's fun and what i think i learned from reading dickens is how to elevate them into just extreme forms uh, and how to play with them so that nobody is persuaded that by the actual claims that you make, but they are persuaded that it moves in that direction. They are persuaded that this is, you know, the, the end result of the place or the, a picture of where we are going. And maybe we had still have time not to go there. Yes. Uh, and that's hard to do. We've failed in so many ways, Wesley, uh, to, to halt things, uh, to stand athwart history yelling stop. Uh, but the job is, you know, for us, there is only the doing. The rest is not our business. Yes. Uh, to quote T.S. Eliot. My, my sense is, um, and we'll talk about this perhaps on another show, that the American Revolution is being attacked by the French Revolution. Uh, and those are totally different value systems and approaches to community. Uh, and the French Revolution wants to destroy everything and rebuild anew, and it's very utopian. And I think it is involved in all of the things, and I'm using that as a metaphor, obviously, but it is involved in all the things that you've been talking about today. We're out of time. Uh, there's so much I didn't get to that I had prepared, but maybe we'll do that another time. What's next for Jody Bottom? Well, my new book of poetry is coming out in... September. This has really been a poetry year, Wesley. I've been invited to give the Phi Beta Kappa graduation program poem at Princeton next month. In August, I'm teaching a master's class, master class uh, in poetry for the Frost Foundation at Robert Frost's old farm. Uh, wow. It's just, and my new book is coming out. It's really been a poetry year. What's the and, name of the book? And the book is called Spending the Winter, and it's coming out Spending from St. Augustine's Press in September. All right. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. And uh, Jody, thank you very much for being on Humanize and, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you for having me, Wesley. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.